Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Taming the Shrew podcast. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be taking a look at three articles that examine the evidence for and safety of droperidol. Uh, in the EM world, particularly in the United States, saying the word droperidol carries with it a bit of a mythological connotation. You know, it's the prodigal son that's returned to help rid our patients of nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, headaches, and, and agitation. For those unfamiliar with the history and pharmacology of droperidol, here's a brief primer. Droperidol is a butyrophenone with primarily dopaminergic action as a D2 receptor antagonist. The side effects of droperidol include extrapyramidal effects, achesthesia and dystonia, sedation, hypotension, and QTC prolongation. Now, in 2001, the FDA issued a black box warning due to concerns about QT prolongation in torsades. The black box warning was based on 273 case reports that were recorded over a four-year period of time. Now, it's important to note that in the majority of the 89 deaths reported in those 273 case reports, uh, the doses of droperidol ranged from 25 to 250 milligrams. Adverse cardiac events or death occurred in 10 patients who had received doses less than 2.5 milligrams. And so the black box recommends that EKG telemetry monitoring for two to three hours after administration of droperidol and that an EKG uh, be performed on all patients receiving droperidol and that droperidol should not be administered to patients with a QTC greater than 440 milliseconds for males and 450 milliseconds for females. Notably, the black box warning applies only for the dosages of droperidol as indicated in the package insert, which is 2.5 milligrams or higher and lower doses are commonly used in the ED setting. 0.625 milligrams to 1.25 milligrams are typical doses for nausea, vomiting, and migraine. The first paper we're going to look at is by Calver et al. from Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2015, The Safety and Effectiveness of Droperidol for Sedation of Acute Behavioral Disturbance in the Emergency Department. This is a prospective observational study conducted in six Australian emergency departments from 2009 to 2013. Any adult patient requiring parental sedation for behavioral agitation was eligible for inclusion in the study. The patients that were combative or severely agitated received 10 mg IM or IV of droperidol. If their level of agitation did not decline, as assessed by a two-point drop in the sedation assessment tool score within 15 minutes, they were given an additional 10 mg IM or IV of droperidol. Following that intervention, additional medications were at the discretion of the treating provider. Now, the primary objective of the study was to evaluate for the frequency of QT prolongation in torsades de pont, uh, and a secondary outcome was to evaluate for the effectiveness of droperidol for sedation. From an EBM standpoint, this makes a bit of a mix of a safety and therapy trial with no direct prospective comparator group. Patients were included in the safety analysis if they received an EKG within two hours of the time of medication administration. Data collection was done using an acute behavioral disturbance observation form, and QT intervals were measured by hand by a single investigator who had a subset of reads reviewed by another investigator. They then plotted the QT intervals on a QT nobogram previously used in the toxicology literature, and anything above the at-risk line in that nobogram was considered abnormal, with the author's primary outcome being the proportion of patients who had an abnormal QT as defined by the nobogram. Other outcomes were proportion of patients with torsades de pont, time to sedation, failed sedation, requirement for additional sedation, over-sedation, and staff injuries. And whenever reading an article, I fall back on the framework that the folks up in Hamilton, Ontario, McMaster's have laid out and look at, to look at and assess the validity of the results, to assess what the results actually were, 
And then how do I apply these results to my patient population? For this particular paper, from a validity standpoint, the authors did a great job with prospective and clear data collection instruments. The inclusion criteria were clear and the interventions standardized across multiple sites. The patient flow diagram indicates that there were some fallouts from the initial trial. About 300 of 1,400 patients received Reperidol but did not get an EKG. But they did not find that any of those patients were diagnosed with torsades, giving you some degree of comfort that the dropouts may be reasonably similar to the patients ultimately included in the analysis. There's no direct comparison group for the relative risk of QT prolongation, but the use of a nomogram that has been previously shown to to be a valid tool for assessing risk from QT prolongation is a pretty convincing outcome measure. At risk, QT prolongation and torsades are certainly patient-centric outcomes worthy of study. However, having an EKG attained within two hours of medication administration as opposed to a specific time point after medication administration does bring into question whether or not there were there could have been concerning QT prolongation that may have been missed in some patients. There was non-consecutive enrollment of patients at all but one clinical site, meaning that some patients could have been missed or repaired all not ordered due to certain patient characteristics. Overall, I'm not convinced that this would have resulted in significant bias that would drastically change the outcomes of the paper. Now, at the end of the day, taking into account the study design and noted limitations, I feel I have a fair bit of faith in the validity of these results as they were reported in the paper. It's certainly not a perfect study, but I feel it accurately reports the EKG findings and outcomes for a large number of agitated patients receiving very large doses of droperidol. So, next question. What were the results? There were 1,403 patients with a complete data set. 312 were either no EKG were done or the EKG was not done within two hours. And as I noted before... None of those 312 patients had torsades de point. 13 of the 1,009 patients with at least one EKG had an abnormal QT. And of those, two had previously documented abnormal QT intervals, two were on methadone, and two were on escitalopram, and one was receiving amiodarone, leaving only six patients with an otherwise unexplained at-risk QT prolongation. Torsades did not occur in any of the patients in the trial, and there were a total of 70 adverse events reported, including 22 patients with oxygen desaturation, 28 patients with hypotension, 7 patients with extrapyramidal symptoms. These adverse events did not appear to be related to the dose of droperidol ultimately administered, and adverse event rates were similar in patients that had received benzodiazepines plus droperidol as compared to those who received droperidol alone. Over-sedation, as judged by a score of negative 3 on the sedation assessment tool, occurred at nearly 8% of patients. This score corresponds to an exam where the patient does not have a response to verbal or physical stimuli. The median time to sedation was 20 minutes, with 69% of the patients being effectively sedated within the, with the initial dose. So to recap, 1,009 patients received Roperidol and had an EKG, and six had an otherwise unexplained prolongation of their QT interval with no episodes of torsades documented. The protocol resulted in successful sedation of patients, but carried with it a risk of over-sedation to the tune of nearly 8%, and some risk of adverse events, including hypotension and hypoxia, which occurred approximately 2% of the time. So final question, how would I apply the results to my patient practice? The baseline demographics for the study in their table one describes a population with inciting causes for agitation not too dissimilar to what I tend to see in my patient population. 
Knowing the exact psychostimulants the patients were on would be nice, but isn't a deal breaker in terms of interpretation in my mind. What would have been nice to see, however, would be a better description of the medical comorbidities and physical description of the patients. The median age of the study was 34, and there were some elderly patients in the mix as well. What proportion of patients had pre-existing chronic respiratory conditions or were on meds that could also prolong the QT interval? What portion of patients were obese or had a history of obstructive sleep apnea? There are a lot of questions which make it a touch difficult to say with certainty that the patients in this study weren't more or less likely to have QT abnormalities or other adverse events in response to administration of droperidol as compared to what my typical patient population is. That being said, my global takeaway from the article is that the administration of large doses of droperidol to agitated patients did not result in a high likelihood of QT prolongation, and that torsades is rare. Well, that will wrap it up for today. I hope everybody enjoyed this brief podcast. Now, over the course of the next couple weeks, we're going to be recapping a couple more articles that also look at the safety and effectiveness of droperidol for agitated patients as this is a medication that uh, many new to the practice of emergency medicine aren't entirely familiar with. Hopefully this can be a good summarization of some of the relevant literature that's out there. Thanks for listening. See you next time.